Hello, welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest is Ryan Hurst, CEO of Peculiar Ventures and a veteran cybersecurity builder who has worked on a lot of the plumbing for the infrastructure for encryption, HTTPS on the web. Ryan, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing good. How about you, Ryan? Very good. I want to start with Peculiar Ventures. What is Peculiar Ventures and what do you do there? It's my consulting firm. It, it actually started as a plan to be a, a venture entity and in the end it turned it in turned into a professional services organization through a series of peculiar events. Um, we've done work for a number of big tech companies, um, sometimes turnkey product development, sometimes um, targeted consulting engagements, a little bit of everything. Is it fair to say it's in the area of encryption and in the area it of... Is. Uh... Yeah, thanks for holding me accountable to that. Yeah, we most of the work we do is, uh, is related to um, building systems that use applied cryptography, digital certificates, uh, encryption. Uh, and, but uh, we also do, one of our clients is a financial services startup and we build their front end um, and there's no real cryptography involved in that. So, um, okay. but the majority of the work is in that space. I mentioned at the top that you have been a veteran in the cybersecurity uh, world, uh, may have undersold a little bit of it. You spent the combined 18 years between Google and Microsoft, which suggest that you know where all the bodies are buried. Can you just take a, a step back and give me a little bit of your contributions, uh, starting with like the old Microsoft days and some of the stuff you built that we would be familiar with? Sure. I, I actually spent two stays at Microsoft, one in the 90s and one in the two, early 2000s, um, across the two stays, 15 years. Um, uh, I've worked on the plumbing for network infrastructure. I've worked on... Uh, cryptography, uh, TLS certificates, biometrics, a number of efforts around uh, network isolation, and an author of in the ITF for protocol EPTLS, which is used for wireless authentications in a lot of enterprises. And so I have a lot of core technology infrastructure, including Microsoft certificate services. I formalized the Microsoft root program. So if you wanted to become a publicly trusted CA. So uh, when I describe my, my Microsoft experience, I usually um, talk about being an operating system person because I've had a chance to work across a broad swath of problems like Secure Boot, participate in the TCG um, for um, sort of the root of trust problem problem set, amongst other things. I uh, spent eight years at Google. Uh, at Google, I've held a few roles, but uh, my, my last role was at a product for um platform security technologies. So um, in that included like machine identity, Google Trust Services, which is a publicly trusted CA. Um, uh, I also helped create, not help create, but helped uh, Let's Encrypt get get established uh, as an advisor for a long time uh, and helped create a number of other publicly trusted CAs. Um, so most people know me for my work in the web PKI with things like um, certificate transparency and uh, just increasing the adoption of HTTPS on the web. HTTPS on the web is kind of one of these leapfrog technologies, really enabled all kinds of e-commerce and all kinds of trusted systems on the web. I want to spin back to a, no a note I saw from Dan Gear once that we went a little too far with the push for web encryption. Uh, and the question to you is, has that work been completed? Because I look at my browser today and I see a padlock and I click on that padlock, it tells me it's secure, I click on it, I see a bunch of random numbers and so on. Uh, would you say the work around encrypting uh, traffic on the web is complete? And what, 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 what? If not, what still needs to be done? Where's the shortfall to connect it to all of us understanding what's really happening? 
That's a good question. I, I don't think it's complete. I think it's amazing what we've done in the last decade. I think you and I, uh, in a hallway conversation, were talking about how we used to get our browsers via floppy disks uh, in uh, in magazines, and we've gone to a world where you know our browsers are updating you know every month automatically, and um, that really has helped us push adoption of encryption on the web uh, uh, much quicker, especially with Let's Encrypt and the work they've done to make automation on the web with Acme um, uh, a reality. And so um, I'm really happy with how far we've gotten, but unfortunately we're not all the way there. And I'll, I wouldn't, I actually don't know if we'll ever, if the work will ever actually be done. Um, and we'll, right now, if we look at uh, sessions by the most, the most popular browsers, depending on what region you're in, you you know, we're about 80 to 98% of sessions in browsers are encrypted, but that last, you know, um, few percent... Blocking? What's the yeah, block? It's there? a lot of it is it's a combination of things. Some of it is like cultural stuff. A good chunk of uh, traffic in China, for example, isn't encrypted for reasons that are not technology related uh, necessarily. Um, there are also, you know, in, in poor countries, technology doesn't get updated as frequently. So there are a lot of variables that kind of go into that last few percent, um, as well as some compatibility issues that still have to be solved. Um, to Dan's comment about did we go too far i i actually don't think so i think you can't the argument is the argument is sorry to interrupt is that a lot of the the threats don't happen with uh uh, data in motion a lot of the real world threats happen elsewhere so why are we focused so heavily there when again like you mentioned there's 10 percent of the world that just can't get on https everywhere yeah, I think I agree with that sentiment that a lot of the threats don't happen at the session layer. But today we put more and more information on the web. And, you know, when you interact with somebody on the web, you kind of feel like they're right next to you right now. You're a foot away from me and it feels like we're back at Black Hat. Um, right. But the reality is, is that that traffic's traveling all over the place. And I don't know who would have the ability to see that if it was in the clear. And this is a podcast that's going to be public. Um, so maybe I don't have a lot of lot to cons- be concerned with. Right, but, but if it's a uh, Zoom call with a with a medical professional, a family, a, a personal issue, I care. And so um, the reality is that um, so much personal information travels on the web. You can't make subjective calls for every single uh, decision on whether or not we apply encryption here or not. We just need a, a reliable private transport that everybody can build on. Plus, every application shouldn't have to re-implement the world for how do we provide uh, an encrypted you know, channel, certainly cases where that may be appropriate. But uh, there should be like some common plumbing that we can rely on, and it should just always be there. And so I think for success is app developers can build apps and not have to worry about encryption. And we're well on our way there, but we're not there yet. What has to be, what has to happen for us to get there fully? Or you mentioned we may never get there fully, but like if you could wave a wand and, and, and put all the resources into this one thing that needs to be done to push us over a hump, what would you do? I, I gosh, the magic wand would maybe be to change perspectives of more re- repressive regimes, um, make technology more accessible um, to people who don't have the most recent hardware. That would probably be the two things. And some of that gets solved with time, you know, so hardware ages out and new hardware uh, comes in and has more capability. 
Um, but society has taken a long time to get to where it is. I'm not sure, you know, uh, how long that other problem gets solved. That being said is even when we're there, it has to be defended. I mean, an encryption in all forms is constantly under attack. Um, and there's some security assumptions in the web PKI that, you know, were solid at one point and maybe are not so much now. Like one of the things that I worked on prior to leaving Google was the implementation of a very robust mitigation, or at least one of the most robust mitigations available to BGP hijacking for um, uh, the verification of entitlement to a domain. So can we issue you a certificate for um, uh, your your domain or not? And right now the cost of performing that attack is uncomfortably uh, cheap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there was a great talk at DEF CON last week where there's they found systemic uh, remote exploits in, in routers related to their BGP parsing. And so that lowers the cost of those attacks even more. And so if you can get a certificate for somebody or for somebody's website, now you can, with one more attack, you can impersonate that website and um, get that content. And that opens up all kinds of uh, nation state attacks as well as non-nation state attacks. You know, the assumption of it's encrypted are no longer protecting me. And so there's like, it'll take forgive the the term, but constant vigilance for the people who come after us to be able to make sure that we're constantly changing the way we do this to deal with new threats, for example, post-quantum cryptography, and right. you know how will that change the web? I was just going to ask, what's the long-term mitigation for this? Is it post-quantum? I mean, are we heavily reliant on what that offers? I think, you know, code, you know, we as developers, we talk about bit rot, and you know, code over time, you know, rots and becomes less reliable. Um, I think that's true of the security infrastructure decisions. You have to it needs care and feeding like a garden. And uh, in the case of uh, the internet, one of the pieces that's been really neglected for a long time is this BGP problem. And uh, you know, it's the foundation of the way the web works, and it gets very little attention. Can you linger uh, there and kind of expand a little bit on what the BGB problem is and how it relates to some of the nation state yeah. things we're seeing? Yeah. So when we go to um, a website in the 90s, you know, you'd run a web server. It would be running on a single machine and have a single IP address. And that was the web application. Today, when you go to a website, you might be hitting tens, hundreds, thousands of endpoints, and it might they might all look like they're behind a single IP address. And BGP is the magic that makes that happen. It's part of what makes the web reliable, what makes the web fast, regardless of where you are. And um, the way that this works is largely an honor system. Uh, People who own networks sort of have the opportunity to say, I'm a reliable way to get traffic from point A to point B. And, And they might route that traffic to a different and entity, like when you browse to a server, you're going to get one server and I'm going to get another very likely today. That's the basis of how all CDNs work and large majority of, of the web is behind a CDN now. Right. Um, and so when you can trick people to go wherever you want, which is basically what be an attack on BGP allows, you can now trick anybody who's trying to verify that you can control a domain. Um, so when I go to get a certificate or as an attacker, if I want to get a certificate I can get for a given domain. I can have them go hit my DNS server, for example, um, and, and which instead of the authoritative DNS server, and I can complete that challenge uh, right. challenge for them. And uh, so I can then get a certificate that pretends to be them. I feel like um, I've watched a BGP hijacking talk at DEF CON for the last 10 years. Is that fair um, that this is not a new problem or this is not a new it's, issue? It's been- not. 
Yeah, I think I, I remember being in ITF in 2006 and, uh, you know, having hallway conversations about, you know, how we need to revise BGP, how we need BGP SEC, um, which is basically a, a mechanism to do signing of these announcements. So you can at least attribute the origins and do reputation kind of filtering on who says, I am authoritative and you can trust me right. to, to get your traffic there. And, uh, you know, while we've made a lot of progress, um, there's still a lot more progress needed to be able to secure BGP. So What's this is the big priority. I, um, right now, um, the efforts to get all of these announcements signed basically is where a lot of effort is being put. And then um, there's other work that's going on to be able to use that to be able to intel intelligently filter these announcements, basically. Um, and there is a there's a website run by Cloudflare is BGP secure.com, I think, something like that, that is sort of uh, checks your particular ISP and whether or not they are respecting these signed uh, signed messages effectively. And, um, uh, you know, certainly in the case of residential providers, it's not, not supported very commonly yet. Um, so you're an old timer like me. We mentioned going all the way back to the 1990s. I I've been writing about Microsoft and Windows security issues since the early 2000s, since the warm era. And I've been around to watch Microsoft uh, move from being a pariah in security to being a trendsetter to the trustworthy computing era. And it feels like we're falling off a cliff lately. We've had the latest uh, 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 exchange online issue, Chinese hackers hacking into uh, government networks through Microsoft's cloud. It, it, it feels very much like we're in an era of insecurity coming out of there. Is that a fair assessment of, of where we are, that, that Microsoft appears to have fallen off the cliff? It does feel that way, but I think I'm, I'm maybe a little less pessimistic about it. Um, the analogy I, I use when I've had this conversation in the past is when I was a kid, my, my father asked me to read uh, Plato's Republic and uh, tell me tell, tell him, you know, what did I learn from that? And my answer was very little has changed. And um, uh, if I look back over the last 30 years I've been in this industry, I've already seen several cycles repeat itself. And, um, and when it comes to the way an organization sort of operates, a lot of that has to do with who is, has the best or loudest leader, most focused leader on a given problem. And so, um, well, I think Microsoft, you know, I was very proud of the work that we did at Microsoft in uh you know, TCG and just broadly around SDLC in the industry. Um, and I see continued uh, investment from Microsoft in that area. It does kind of feel like, at least as an outsider, that on the operation side um, uh, in, in cloud, that they're not paying the same level of attention that we would have back in the day. But I think it's a cyclical problem. Um, nobody is perfect. Um, and there are a lot of interesting challenges when building systems to be resilient against security attacks and scaling at that scale. And I, I suspect we're fun running into trade-offs. Feels very much like a different time because Microsoft has emerged as a massive enterprise cybersecurity vendor. Uh, Satya is constantly boasting about 10 billion a year, 15 billion a year, now up to 20 billion a year in cybersecurity related revenue. So a lot of this cyclical kind of falling off the cliff, back on the cliff, falling off the cliff, back on the cliff that you that you mentioned is happening at a different time now when there's a there's revenue attached to cybersecurity and this absence of transparency or whatever weaknesses we are seeing from the outside doesn't doesn't appear to be affecting Microsoft as much. Uh, the previous push around security happened in response to the warm era and in response to all the disruptions that was happening. 
it feels weirdly like we're right back again, back to your Plato's Republic analogy. We're right back into that cycle where the government and CISA and enterprises, there's a lot of energy around holding Microsoft. Uh, is, there enough, is there enough motivation for Microsoft to fix whatever problems they have when the revenue I think so. Here? I think one thing that people get wrong about big companies is that they're not really just one company. You know, from the outside, you say, oh, it's it's Google. Um, you know, well, Google has, you know, a division that focuses on cloud and a division that focuces on something else. And, uh, and, it's something and they're else all and in different else. silos, though. I mean, this is 2023. You would imagine a modern enterprise would have done enough to break down those silos so we can somehow have a singular company. People are hard and lots and lots of people are even harder. Um, I would, you know, it's much easier to solve technology problems than it is people problems across a large organization. You, uh, you changing a culture takes, you know, a decade in a, in a big company, sometimes more. Um, you can kind of see plot how long it took for Microsoft to really get its security act together. And then it got it together and it ran that for a long time. And then, right. yes, some areas have gotten even better. Some areas... Maybe, maybe not as good. Um, I can't really account for the origin of what's happening, so I'm really only speaking as an outsider. But I see the see the smoke, and where there's smoke, there's often fire. So a lot of it is the loss of institutional memory. Like you mentioned, a lot of the guys who built the Microsoft security SDLC and a lot of the positive things here went on to become CISOs and run security programs elsewhere. And then a new batch of leaders come out and they have to learn their own lessons. A lot of that is this institutional memory is gone, right? And it's not unique to Microsoft. It's it's across the board, right? It's true, absolutely. And and some of it is, it's not that people don't even understand the how to secure things. There's also an element of the art of navigating and influencing a very large organization. And it's, it's not a science, it's an art. Every actor in that ecosystem is different and they're motivated by something a little bit different. And how do you actually tell the story really concretely? You had uh, somebody on recently that was talking about how the tightening that's going on with spending um, is forcing security professionals to like be able to tell their story better, to be able to talk about the value of of their offering and uh, in a in a way that is not just about I reduce threats but how I help the business and this is one of the things that you have to be really good at to be able to manage a large organization is how do you uh, how do you actually tell the value of your story? How do you both motivate your leadership to support you on that journey? Just give a portion of of revenue that they'd like to spend somewhere else on that charter and how do you motivate the people in the organization to kind of do the same thing? And it's not one message. Usually it's going to be a suite of messages across, you know, the different teams that need to be influenced and right. finding the leader who's able to deliver that is, it, you know, it, it takes, it it's takes time. Trivial. Yeah. And you have to build them usually. And that just takes time. How does Microsoft, the company uh, with the, the sophistication of Microsoft, lose a key to Chinese hackers, a signing key that gives people access to tenants' data? Like, how does something like that happen? Is it because of this complex nature of silos that you're just describing, or is it... I think it's partially business trade-offs. Again, I'm, I'm projecting. I don't know exactly yeah, yeah. what happened in this particular instance, but there is a challenge. Well, let me put the question of... to you this way. Were yeah. you surprised that that happened? Oh, I was not surprised that it happened. So one of the problems that you you have when you're deploying at a scale like Google or Microsoft is how do I deal with, you know, significant percentage of the entire internet's traffic? And that's not a trivial problem. It's not a question of, oh, I'll just 
you know, run another couple of servers to solve the problem. Um, you know, you just, you have to distribute the load globally. Um, and how do you do that in a way that you can keep keys safe? Um, you know, the naive thing to do is to say, well, we'll just load these keys in the memory on the thing that's doing the signing and we'll scale out the front end of that, that service so that it has enough signing capacity to be able to support all of the load. And that is a, a trade-off that's made. The right thing to do would be to take that key and move it into some signing oracle that's out of proc of the thing that's actually dealing with the front-end traffic. Because um, I like to say parsers are the source of all evil in security. And you know, you receive a message and you need to parse it so you can figure out what to sign. Well, you know, there maybe was a buffer overflow or an integer overflow or some sort of uh, attack vector on that front end. Maybe it was sitting in a database sitting on the file system so it could be quickly loaded by those signers that are that are sitting there and the attacker was actually inside the network. A lot of large networks have persistent attackers hiding in there just looking for something valuable for months and years until they find the thing that's valuable and where they choose to use that that access that they've secured. And so it's hard to say exactly what happened, but it, for sure, the key was not well protected. I'm, I, I would put bet reasonable money on that. And that doesn't surprise you, even at a company with the sophistication and resources at Microsoft, that a key of that magnitude would not be like properly protected. And how do you protect it? Like, if you were to build a system to make sure that never happens, what is the ideal state? Well, you know, the some people say, well. A key that important should be in a hardware security module. I would say it doesn't need to be in a hardware security module, probably. Those devices are designed around largely physically protecting keys, and physical threats are not really the most important threats. It's the logical threats. Mm -hmm. So you would probably move that key into a service that is globally scaled, that does signing on behalf of other services. But that once you have a service like that, that has to be managed by a group of people. It has to be managed at the same uptime or better than anything that takes a dependency on it. And so that gets quite expensive to be able to do that and, and, and put aside cost. It gets, you know, it takes time. You, you want to deploy a new service. Well, to deploy that new service, you have to deploy the sister service. You know, it, it gets, there are trade-offs that are made. Um, did that happen in this case? I don't know. But, right, right. you know, why I don't expect, I'm not necessarily surprised. Usually when it comes to key management, which is an area that I've spent a lot of time on, um, somebody has to speak up or you know, less than ideal solutions are put in place. And there are just not enough experts in this area to say, hey, let's, let's see, let's think about what the threat model for this key is and what the consequences are. And you know, is this an adequate level of protection? Another variable is whose risks are it? Is it, is it the the, the organization who's running the service risk, or is it the people whose credentials there? Are you trading off your risks, your time for somebody right. else's risks? Uh, it's something that people don't think about enough when they design systems. But it's scary if Microsoft can't get this right. What does that say about the state of the cloud that we all rely on? I mean, the government is entirely bought into Microsoft. That's the reason we have this, this mess. And Senator Wyden is calling for like, uh, you know, uh, a, a lot more strict monitoring and holding of Microsoft uh, responsible. But what does this say about the state of cloud if Microsoft can't get that right? I think cloud is actually probably in a better shape. Um, and it, the reason I say that is it's designed as a series of platforms that are loosely connected. And platforms focus on their core properties. So if you were to look at a KMS system in 
we'll pick on AWS since we've not talked to them. It's going to be managed in such a way where they're thinking about the API service separate from the key protection service, because for them to be able to sell their KMS, they have to be able to explain to their customers, how are they protecting those keys? Because the key is the primary function of the service. But what ends up happening is many of the big companies don't run their core services on cloud. And in some cases, those cloud services might not be capable of dealing with, you know, the top, I don't know, Microsoft.com, I'm going to guess is number number two, number three in internet traffic for the globe. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe the cloud deployment of the key management services aren't ready to scale to that size. I don't know. But uh, the, I would say cloud broadly is probably in, is in a better shape just because the product is the platform and the platforms are designed for specific use cases rather than being a sort of an afterthought to an application. When I read the Cyber Safety Review Board, CSRB report on Lapsus, a group of teenagers, not a skilled nation state uh, attack group, but a group of teenagers largely wreaking havoc on some of the biggest names in security through you know, misconfigurations and, and finding weaknesses in the way multi-factor authentication is enabled and so on. If that's the state of play at big companies, it, it's pretty jarring that our reality is we, we largely can't protect anything. I don't know. I feel it feels helpless to me. Yeah, it's well, I would say it's job security. Um, but uh, I'm not. I mean, I started, uh, you know, doing cracks on video games when I was, you know, before I was a teenager. And um, most of the people I think in our generation who fell into security, certainly before they were legal adults, um, you know, were were wreaking havoc, maybe for chaos sake rather than, you know, monetary uh, sake. But um, I think the one of the things I, I usually say is a measure of a good security program isn't that you don't get hacked. Everybody gets hacked. The measure of a good security program is how quickly you detect you've been hacked and how well you respond when it happens. And so I think, um, again, this is back to uh, vigilance, continual vil vigilance right. in the way that we, we, we build and manage and you can't stay static. There is no, okay, we're secure now. This, anybody who talks like that has never had to actually defend against um, a real adversary. Right. But so this cat and mouse is forever. Forever. Job security. Yeah, for sure. I mean, okay, maybe AI, you know, changes yeah. the, the number of, of it, but there will always be people who are focused on security, even as security morphs into core elements of product. Right. You mentioned just briefly the podcast with Jason Chan talking about uh, uh, metrics and deliverables and security teams being able to, you know, tell their story and show business value. Uh, and I wonder how much of that we can blame on CISOs and blame on buyers who are very happy to buy something in each category, follow whatever Gartner's direction is, and call it secure. And then the other thing is they don't have skin in the game. Like the average CISO tenure is 17 to 24 months, maybe 36 months when you, like how can someone be a transformational leader in 24, 36 months where there's no skin in the game and it feels very much like, like Jason said, we aren't. Uh, uh, security programs we aren't even capable of showing our own value. What does that say about the state of play among buyers and defenders? 
It, it's interesting. One of my favorite podcasts is an economist pod, podcast. I, um, and uh, I, I listen, I'm not an economist, but I love listening to the way that they think about modeling um, problems and how they do things. And I, I recommend this podcast to people constantly. Uh, Dimitri Kofinas, uh, Hidden Truth, Hidden hidden Whatever, Dimitri Kofinas. Anyways, um, it gives me insights into how to talk about security because there's a lot of commonalities there. And I think security professionals sometimes need to take a step out of security and and just think about how other people are modeling their problems and and take lessons from that and how that they can talk about things. The As far as like CISO's priorities, I think we have the core problem when you look at CISO tenure, or core problem is in fact CISO tenure, tenure because even when you step into an organization, I could, any organization, I've been a CISO in the past, I join an organization, it's going to take me six, eight months to Just fully to understand up, yeah. yeah, all of the politics, the technology investments and everything. And then you look at you know less than two year tenure, now what can you do in less than two years? Um, I think that's a big component of it. Half of the time yeah. you're looking for your next gig, right? I mean, it's it, it, it's, yeah. a, it's a it's a harsh, harsh, humbling reality about what's really going on in security programs everywhere. Yeah, it, for sure. And I think that, you know, if we can find the root cause of the short tenure, um, and I, I have theories, um, it's not exactly an easy job to do, um, uh, but, uh, um, and we can ad- address that, we can get more time uh, where somebody has a chance to make bigger impact. The other thing is when they come into those situations, there's usually existing investments that they have to, it's not like they're starting with a, a clean slate. Yeah. They, they have to finish off whatever's already in play or, you know, in some portion of it, they'll be able to reset and start over, but that eats away at that less than two year window. And so now the question is, what do you do? How do you pick the most recent uh, the most important things to to work on, and I do think that a lot of times the they when they do get free resources, they decide to spend it on shiny objects and not on things that like map closely to their biggest risks. Um, mm-hmm. I I know you know some banks insist that their web server certificate uh, private keys are on HSMs. Um, I love HSMs. I have HSMs in my garage. I use them more than most people on the planet. But um, that's a silly requirement as far as I'm concerned. You're at a much greater risk of a denial of service attack than you are a a key compromise. And you can manage the risk of a key compromise um, by keeping the keys validity very short um, uh, and managing it via other security separation things. But you know, somebody might decide, well, we've got a lot of HSMs, we need some more HSMs. Whereas yeah. what is the business problem I'm trying to solve and what is the impact? I, I'd like to see CISOs in the limited time they do have spend uh, to, to do new things, focus on the business risks more and, and less on you know this year's thematic um, in the marketplace. Speaking of this year's thematic in the marketplace, we just got, got out of Black Hat. You walk the show floor there, there's AI everywhere. Everyone is adding some sort of chat GPT-like integration to their product. AI is the big uh, promise to fix security. I know you're a big fan of AI. Uh, can you fast forward, give me 10 years, and what are some of the emergent use cases you see for AI that will really be leapfrog beyond just, you know, speeding up classification or speeding up some sort of uh, existing co-pilots and some of the things we're seeing. Is there some use cases down the road that you're already envisioning? 
Well, I, I, I see one thing that I think is, is a reality that CISOs coming back to the CISO, um, constraints is it's really hard to build out a team of experts in all the various domains of security that exist. And we're already starting to see startups emerge that sort of can put that expertise in a box um, through uh, large language models. And while it's very early in that process, you know, 10 years from now, I imagine you'll have generalists using, um, you know, these AI empowered tools to be able to get insights similar to what we were able to get from domain experts and to help, which will help them decide if they really need to bring in those domain experts to be able to better manage or understand a problem. So I don't think it will replace as much as it might even create a funnel to increase the engagement with domain experts because these expert systems will be able to um, help to explain why this is a problem and why you need to engage with it. So I think that's an exciting space. I also think that, um, you know, as was mentioned, maybe it was also on the Jason Chen conversation. Like I like the shift left in solving issues before they get out um, that's going on in the industry. Um, you know, we're going to hit the wall on left here really soon. Um, and I don't think it's going to eliminate issues, but it'll go, a long way to addressing the most common, you know, use after free sort of problems, which can be templatized and then validated um, and, you know, applied earlier. And some of those solutions aren't strictly AI based, rather they kind of fit into the larger family of automation. Um, right. But uh, I think th those are probably two of the most exciting areas is like, I do think we'll be in a better place on a code basis as a result of this this stuff and we'll have access to more insights, but a lot of security vulnerabilities come from just bad architecture. And I don't have a lot of faith for, um, the, at least the technologies we see right now, bearing any remediative properties for, for those kind of problems. So I still think security professionals, um, are going to be doing just fine 10 years from now. When you look at uh, the startup ecosystem, what excites you? Is there anything you're seeing that really stands out as these guys are tackling the problem? Because a, a lot of what I see in the startup ecosystem, especially the VC-backed startup ecosystem, is a copycat of this one thing that's doing well. Let's, every VC will have a, 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 a foot in the door in, in a copycat thing. Beyond that, what are you seeing? What are you hearing that excites you? Um, you know, I remember right now kind of feels for me a little bit like, um, you know, when we started to get hosting facilities, we went from having to rack and stack machines, you know, configure them by hand, do our own images and, and, uh, um, roll all of that out. The capital costs of building a business was super high, you know, cloud reduced that even further. Um, I and mean, if I look at startups, we're getting a lot of hyper specialization. There's also a lot of, um, really poorly applied capital from my perspective in the VCs, maybe even more now than yeah. in the past, because, you know, the cycle, the hype cycle of chasing whatever this, this year's thematic is, is it blockchain? Is it AI? Is it, you know, sassy? Is it whatever yeah. web three? Um, and I, I kind of wish that the VCs were more focused on um, finding that blend of long-term viability of, of a business tying to solving a problem rather than a line item in an existing budget. But the 
you know, a lot of the VC decision making is they have their own business to run and they need to be able to show a return in a short period of time, which means that they don't really look out very far out. I think that's why we see so many knockoffs of each other is you want to stand out. You want to, you know, last week, you know, you know, large language models come out next week. I have to apply it in, in my VC pitch. I need, I have about six weeks to be one of the first to be funded. I better start making phone calls. That's basically how all of these cycles appear to work. And then the long tail comes in and then it putters out and uh, starts over. So is there a I, category I'd... or a problem that still excites you that you would be willing to put your own money behind? Well, um, I put my time behind a couple of different startups. I, I work with a company called Sandbox AQ. It's a spin-up out of Google um, that's focusing on uh, post-quantum key management and remediation. How do you actually um, how do you actually get from where we are today to a world where you could actually have PQC resistant infrastructure? And I think it's a really interesting problem because we are, as an industry, absolutely horrible at key management. Um, you know, we went from a world in the '90s where uh, the only way you did key management was with an HSM, and today we have products like HashiCorp Vault, which is basically a database that has passive encryption where you read the values out and store it in an environment variable. Um, it's like anti-key management in many respects. Um, and and so I think that's an interesting space and I think somebody can make a big difference there. And another one I'm working with, you're familiar with, is called Binarly, where um, they're looking at binaries, not, not source like a SAST would, um, and analyzing them to find security vulnerabilities without any additional context. And when you look at, let's say, software supply chain issues, like S-bombs are kind of like the 1990s um, antivirus equivalent, um, looking at hashes of files broadly. But what you really need to do is look at the composition of a binary and figure out what's going on inside so you can have something that is credible that you can lean on. I think that's an exciting space, especially in you know, attackers are moving down the stack and looking at things like firmware, um, which is what they currently focus on. Um, and I think that's a very interesting space. And others looking at strengthening the way that people do, uh, it's a company called Spiral, looking at strengthening the way that you do uh, machine authentication and by making it very easy to adopt the same kind of patterns that Google and Microsoft apply at their, their own core infrastructure so that, you know, it's more accessible. Um, so I think these infrastructure um, startups are the ones that I like the most, right. um, you know, that you can kind of project out and see how they will make the internet safer. I like to say um, I've spent most of my career trying to leave my kids with a better set of technology. Um, right. And so that those are the ones that get me excited. The fascinating thing is that the more boring, unsexy, foundational things are the most exciting things that really require a lot more attention, right? I mean, some of the things you're talking about here is not the thing that's going to give you a big, sexy headline in the New York Times or on Wired, but it is that foundational plumbing that leaves the place better than you found it, right? Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, security people, software developers, you know, these are the kind of things a lot of times they, they, they're gravi they gravitate to. And right. for sure, that's me as well. 
last question because we're running out of time, but I can't let you go without asking your opinion on what we're seeing out of the government. Uh, executive orders out of the administration, big push around zero trust, big push around supply chain, SBOM mandates, cyber safety review board. There's just a lot of like what seems to be really strong energy, Black Hat and DEFCON, we saw Govies and the feds there in, in record numbers. Do you expect some of that energy to filter down and like how how can how can the private sector prepare for what what this energy will bring? Well, I think it's even larger than the US um, situations like Europe has been really ag- aggressive in the way it's approaching global technology regulation and sort of I'd say in the last year and a half, two years, the US has sort of woken up and joined into that that uh, that situation. And when you consider how many sovereign nations there are, it starts to get pretty complicated pretty quick um, to build a, a company. Um, I am both excited about all of the regulation that the U.S. government is doing and all the, the conversation that the U.S. government is having, as well as a little worried. History has shown us that when the government makes a strong statement about a thing, technology industry starts to follow. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Policymakers leading the technologists, yeah. That's right. And and policymakers don't change their mind very quickly and technology changes really quickly. And so I think S-bombs are a good example. Um, I think that we're probably talking we'll about waste them. a lot of resources behind that, right? That's right. And they'll take air out of the room for more real impactful. Real supply chain things, yeah. Yeah, real supply chain things. Um, uh, at the same time, um, plumbing that actually has the ability to make real meaningful impact to the security for our, our kids and our grandkids, these regulations really skew things up and how companies can get prepared for them. A lot of it will have to do with, you know, tabletop exercises. You know, there's the new SEC regulation. I think it was, is it 72 hours or 96 hours? You have to be able to respond to a, a, a breach um, with some post-mortem. Some sort of material sort of impact, yeah. Yeah. And so the only way you can do things like that in a company is if you're if you're gathering that information continuously and you've got playbooks for how you're going to do it. Um, if right. you're investing that is in, not a trivial thing at all to do. Not at all. Yeah. I'm not even sure how practical it is, but directionally, is it the right thing? Yeah, probably. Um, liability shift. Well, that's all about, you know, having artifacts that prove that you're doing the right thing. Um, so that when liability conversations happen, you're like, well, I I did everything that is reasonably um, expected out of an organization. Perfect isn't achievable, right. um, but here's everything I did. I wasn't negligent. So I think this is going to get um, those platform companies that we were just talking about opportunities that didn't exist before. Um, but I hope that it's not just the ones that fill a checkbox and the ones that make the biggest difference. And right. th- that that will be you know tough, but that's where I hope we end up. And we'll leave it right there. Thank you very much, Ryan. Appreciate the time. Thank you very much, Ryan. Mm-hmm.